Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Today we've got Peggy Hall and Evan Batchelor from OSU Extension's Agriculture and Resource Law Program. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Thanks. So there's been some hot topics around water quality and namely the Lake Erie Bill of Rights. So that's kind of what we want to start off with today because I'm sure a lot of farmers out there are wondering what does this mean for them? And this is kind of the first time we've seen something like this in Ohio, but it's not the first time something like this has happened around the country. No, no, it's not. These uh, initiatives have been going on all around the country. And actually, there have been a few in Ohio that are slightly different, but none that target Lake Erie um, as the Toledo Initiative is doing. Why don't you guys... You've spent a lot of time on this over the last week. Uh, why don't you just kind of in layman's terms ex- explain what it means, um, what they're trying to accomplish? Okay. I'll talk a little bit about kind of procedurally what they're doing, and then maybe you could talk a little bit about community, the community rights approach that okay. uh, you wrote about. Sounds so, good. So this is a ballot initiative um, that will be before the residents of Toledo on February, what's the date on that, Evan? February 26th, I believe? Yes. Nope. There's special elections ballot. And what the um, what this initiative proposes is an amendment to Toledo City Charter. A charter is kind of like the constitution for the city. Okay. And that's one approach that we've seen with these kinds of initiatives to amend the charter. The other approach would be just to amend the city ordinances. Um, Ohio courts actually treat those differently. So there was a recent challenge to try to keep this petition, uh, which we call LIBER, the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, uh, to keep the petition off the ballot. But under Ohio law, um, if there are enough of the registered voters in the municipalities sign the petition for a charter amendment, then the city must put it on the ballot. If they had gone the ordinance route and they tried to petition an amendment to their ordinances, then the Board of Elections and the the, uh, city of Toledo could have actually reviewed the substance of the petition and possibly prevented it from going to the ballot. But it wasn't one of those. It was a charter amendment. So it will be on the ballot, despite the challenges to keep it off. Um, The Ohio Supreme Court recently said, there's, there's no authority to stop it because it's gone the charter route. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's kind of a procedural issue. So it will be on the ballot. <laughs> um, and what it does is propose to give legal rights to Lake Erie and the Lake Erie watershed and ecosystem. Um, and those rights are to kind of exist and flourish and not be negatively impacted, basically, by the actions of Uh, governments or corporations. Governments or corporations, so not necessarily individuals. No, no, it only, this this petition, if it passes, um, Toledo's charter would say that any government or corporation uh, that violates the rights of Lake Erie um, could basically 
uh, be brought into court in Lucas County in their common pleas court and could uh, be penalized by having to pay for the costs of restoring the harm that they've caused. But it doesn't apply to individuals, only governments and corporations. And it defines corporations as any business entity. So a little bit vague there as to to what they're getting at. So this is a community rights um, initiative. And why don't you talk a little bit about what we've learned in our research about this this approach and and how it's um, been attempted around the country. Okay, yeah. Um, so you're right in that this is kind of the first time we're seeing this happen for Lake Erie, kind of having a bill of rights on that. We see more of this in the context of oil and gas. Um, there have been a lot of examples in Pennsylvania, a few in Ohio, um, even in New Mexico. Um, the first kind of water quality one we saw was in Washington. And in Washington, they tried to get a charter amendment on the city of Spokane's um, city charter. Yeah, and they they struck that down, um, but they have a little bit of a different procedural thing. But what all these things do essentially is try to give nature rights and try to give people the authority to act on behalf of nature. Because if you give nature rights alone, it can't go out and choose its own legal counsel. Someone has to go and do it for them. Um, so that's what like Lieber is doing, is saying that the residents of Toledo or the city of Toledo can essentially go out and represent um, Lake Erie and its interests. So we haven't seen a lot of examples of these types of things being upheld um, when people try to enforce them. There are a number of examples where they go on the ballot and are successful and put in the city's ordinances or charters, um, but courts have been fairly reluctant to enforce these. Um, Some of the language talks about superseding and essentially invalidating like federal constitutional rights for businesses and legal entities that are being sued under these ordinances. And that just doesn't jive well with courts. They haven't (laughs) been willing to enforce that. Um, they, they're recognizing that federal constitutional rights are supreme over a local government ordinance mm-hmm. and same thing with the state's rights. Right. So, and that's what we're kind of wondering too, a little bit with how the city of Toledo or Toledo residents will be able to claim the right to defend Lake Erie over the state's interest because the state of Ohio through ODNR owns Lake Erie. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and whether the state decides to say anything about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, legally, there's a hierarchy when we look at the federal government, state governments, and local governments. And, you know, there's kind of tension always that plays out between federal and state over certain issues. Um, but among the three, municipalities and local governments clearly have uh, the least um, authority and have to defer um, to those areas that the state or federal government have already determined to be, you know, within their purview. And I think that's certainly a problem that we have here with this. The city of Toledo is trying to say, we, the residents of Toledo, um, you know, are going to outrank everyone else if there's harm to Lake Erie. You, You lose your state rights, you lose your federal rights. And you, we're only going to look at whether you're violating our charter, which says you can't harm Lake Erie. So 
it's not a strong legal argument, and many courts have struck it down because it, it violates all our legal precedent. Well, and I think about that, you know, as a resident of Ohio, but I don't live in Toledo, um, why does this rather select population of the state get to decide the rights of the lake for the rest of us, Mm -hmm. maybe? So I can Mm -hmm. see where that would come into play. Right. So, and I'm also hearing that even if it passes um, in the special election, that might, that's not the end all of it. There is a lot more that has to be um, taken into account. Exactly. And we're getting questions. You know, does this mean, you know, every farmer is going to, in that whole Lake Erie watershed, is going to be sued um, by someone in Toledo? And of course, we don't know that for sure, but I think there are some, you know, some issues that will play into that. And one being, these, these are not great legal arguments, as we've seen from around the country. You know, when they have tried to assert them, they've been, you know, thrown out, basically. Um, and indeed, some attorneys have been sanctioned for trying to bring these kinds of claims in a court of law. Uh, the most recent one being in Pennsylvania, and that magistrate was pretty harsh in saying, yeah. uh, you as an attorney should know that this is not a legally defensible argument, and yet you brought it anyway. Um, so, you know, I think there'll be a bit, any attorney who might do research on this might decide, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I really want to assert this claim. Uh, there are groups, um, that, and one in particular that we've learned about the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Yep. And they, they, uh, advocate this approach to communities all over the country and help them write their charter amendments or ordinances and then also are willing to represent them in court uh, to bring claims under under the amendment or the ordinance. So we might see those attorneys come into Ohio and try to do a case or two. Um, I don't know. I, I don't expect thousands of cases. I think you know one one decision by and these all have to be filed in Lucas County Court of Common Pleas. One decision by that judge saying this is unconstitutional could put a pretty quick stop to all of those potential cases. And how does the decision work um, to make it a special election? Because Elizabeth, you pointed out when we were talking earlier that with it being a special election, the people who are passionate about it are more likely to be the ones turn out to vote rather than people who may not Mm -hmm. necessarily care about the issue. Yeah, Ohio law, when you look at the provisions for being able to initiate um, law, a citizen initiative. Um, it says something like, you know, it will be heard at the next election or, you know, if that's too far off, then it goes to special election. So it's really just a okay. timing issue. Okay. And there is another issue on Toledo's special election. There, There's a keep the jail in downtown Toledo okay. uh, ballot initiative that will be before the voters as well. So it seems pretty clear that this isn't going to hold up in court if it passes. But do we have to wait for a lawsuit to be brought before that language is challenged? Most likely. I mean, to have legal standing, you know, there has to be a real issue. And so the the best way to get the legal standing is to actually have someone assert that 
uh, charter amendment in court. Um, it, it's conceivable that the state could object somehow and try to, to bring an action, but a lot of times if people think it's unconstitutional, it'll just lay there um, in, the, in the ordinance or in the charter, and it doesn't hurt anybody until someone tries to assert it. Um, and I imagine that's probably what will happen here. I doubt that the state would want to take action, um, but it depends what kind of message uh, someone out there may want to send to this effort. On both sides, too, depending upon whether or not someone wants to enforce this really quickly and try to make it work, but, yeah, challenging it, its enforceability would probably require standing first. Mm -hmm. But just because something is in a charter or an ordinance doesn't mean it's enforceable. Like or you, constitutional. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So. Right. Yeah, so potentially, like if it were to be come up as unconstitutional in court, it would still remain in the charter. Yeah. So they could potentially have this language that they can't use in there forever. Right. It wouldn't sit there until they decide to remove it. They just can't yes. enforce it. So like there are other examples of that. Like there are provisions in Ohio's constitution that are unconstitutional to enforce that we just haven't removed yet. So That's so interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and these efforts, as we said, you know, they're, they've been spreading around the country. They're, they're on the books in other places, um, but not highly, highly litigated. I mean, there's, there's a number of cases, but it seems that once it hits an area and is, and is thrown out, then it they move fizzles. On. Yeah. Fizzles out. Yeah. It's interesting that it hasn't worked in other areas, but they're still, they still keep trying it. Mm hmm seems i don't know i mean i suppose at some point it might be successful is that i i think it would require some serious uh revision to to their approach um and you know i think maybe they're just pushing that to try to make small steps toward getting this legal theory recognized Mm -hmm. that that um you know nature and natural objects should have legal rights that can be protected by citizens now we do. Um, if you look at other laws, federal laws, the Clean Water Act, for instance, there's always a citizen suit provision in there that allows citizens to enforce the law. Um, but this legal theory is a bit different because the, the law, as they write it, is purely for the lake itself, uh, rather than just protecting the resource for all people. So it's it's a slightly different argument that I think could take a long, long, long time <laughs> to be recognized uh, legally, if ever. It's just, it's just against all our precedent. So, yeah. well, it's a really big shift in how environmental groups have tried to bring about change. A lot of the focus over the past 40, 50 years has been federal as much as they can under the Clean Air Act, Clean mm-hmm. Water Act. But this is the opposite. This is trying to do it at the local government level and assert local governance rights in a kind of an interesting and new way that they're, they're trying to make changes in this strategy and it just hasn't exactly paid off yet, but that's what they want to change. So we'll see how it plays out. And I think part of the strategy is just that mobilization of the local community to take back some of its rights. There's, um, there's a, a lot of talk out there that, you know, federal and state governments have become too powerful 
and local communities uh, need to push back some. And that's all part of this, too. It's not just all about the resource. It's also about um, the belief um, by these groups that local citizens should have stronger governance rights to control what happens to their community, including the natural resources within the community. So it's an interesting um, kind of movement, I guess, that's out there to try to try to bring power back into the local government and balance out a bit more when we look at federal, state, local. But um, as we mentioned, the constitutions are not necessarily structured in a way that uh, makes that an easy task. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it in a way it makes sense that the local people should be able to help their local resources because the federal government doesn't necessarily have time or not all of them care when they're so mm-hmm. far away from the issue. But like you said, our government isn't necessarily structured that way. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, as you know, there are other efforts out there to try to address some of these water quality issues. And, um, you know, while we all sympathize with the residents of Toledo and what, what happened with their water supply there for a, for a while, um, Maybe this just isn't the correct solution uh, that will address that. Yeah, and that that's a great point to bring it back. I mean, our audience is farmers and those in agriculture, so I think we're mostly aware of the research and efforts that have been going on around the state to um, improve nutrient management. Um, it just is going to take some time because all of those nutrients built up in the lake aren't going to go away overnight, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult issue. Mm-hmm. So a minute ago, Evan, you mentioned the Federal Clean Water Act. Yeah. And there is a new lawsuit that has been brought that is addressing the impaired water status of Lake Erie. Could you fill us in a little bit on on that lawsuit? Yeah, so this is kind of what I was saying where the Lake Erie and Toledo is more of a local government thing. This new lawsuit is more trying to get the federal government and the US EPA to act. So this all started a couple years ago uh, when Ohio, the Ohio EPA issued its basically classifications of all of Ohio's water bodies and determining kind of what their water quality was and where they stood in relation to one another. Um, and so when it did that, it didn't really designate Lake Erie as that bad. Um, there, there are different classifications. And the Environmental Policy and Law Center disagreed with that classification when it was approved by the US EPA and felt that it should be designated as impaired based upon its water quality. It's the western, we should say. Yeah, the, the western, western portion. Basin. Yeah. Um, and this was around kind of shortly after the the big algal blooms, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the Toledo water quality. Yeah. yeah. So a couple and also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but also after Michigan declared the Western right. yeah, Basin. Yeah, and Ohio yes. didn't. Yes. Um, so, yeah, this, this lawsuit and this litigation kind of began a couple of years ago with them trying to get the Ohio EPA to change the designation or the U.S. EPA. And ultimately they did, and the Ohio EPA changed that last year. 
But they're coming back with another lawsuit now saying that, okay, well, even though you designated it as impaired, you didn't take the next step that you're required to do. And that would be to come up with what's called a TMDL, a total maximum daily load. Um, essentially what this would do is put in numbers kind of the maximum amount of agricultural nutrients and other chemicals that Lake Erie can sustain and still have good water quality. And under the Clean Water Act, you're supposed to have this in place as part of your planning process to reach attainment, which is basically good water quality for the purposes that the state wants this water body to have. And because Ohio didn't come up with that, they brought this lawsuit to say that the US EPA can't accept Ohio's submission of Lake Erie's status as impaired without having a TMDL. So essentially what this lawsuit wants to happen is either force Ohio to create one or to make the US EPA say, well, Ohio, you didn't give us one, so we're going to make one instead for you that you have to comply with. Okay. So the end goal is to set up a TMDL that essentially would limit the number of agricultural nutrients that can enter the Western Lake Erie Basin. And other other effluents. Yeah. yeah. Any, any kind of effluent. Yeah, so the, it's a pretty comprehensive list and puts a lot of different numbers. Um, I think it's still going to be difficult because we're dealing with, when we talk about farms, they're still considered non-point source. Mm -hmm. So there's... So how do, they, so how do you regulate, yeah. how do you regulate farm that? discharges? So Ohio EPA's argument with not having to submit a TMDL was saying, well, we're doing other things and we're trying to do an alternative approach that can address this and lower the total um, discharge that we're right. seeing in Western Lake Erie. Um, the environmental group wasn't quite satisfied with that, saying, well, this looks voluntary. It's not going to reach the attainment that we want on the timeline that we want. Mm -hmm. So this was just filed, I think last week. So it'll, it'll have to play out and we'll see what the court says. But the last time around, they weren't very happy. The court wasn't very happy with the Ohio EPA. So. And on that point about farms, some farms are considered point discharges if they're the large uh, livestock facilities with MPDES permits. Yep, we should clarify true. that. True. But yeah. It's yeah. the non-point runoff that, but those farms, like you said, already have those, is it called a permit? Yeah, they in have their place and are with their discharge limits. Yeah, and are inspected and all mm -hmm. that. So. Interesting. Yeah. It's sure. <laughs> a, a big mess out there, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's stuff going on with Western Lake Erie at the local, federal, and now we yeah. have state, too. Yeah. I liked so. Evan's comment yesterday that we can't say Lake Erie's back in the news because it's never out of the news. It's always in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the legal least, news for us. Yeah. There's almost always something going on with Lake Erie. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we can shift gears a little bit away from water quality. Um, one of the big things that's come up with Palmer Amaranth, um, Mare's Tail, now water hemp is the noxious weed wall. So we're seeing more fields, unfortunately, become overrun with some of these weeds kind of unexpectedly in some cases, and mm -hmm. they haven't kept an eye on them. And you've been involved with some of these issues the last couple of years. So um, why don't you give us a little update on that? Sure. You know, for many years, I've talked about uh, the duty to clear your fence row 
which is in Ohio law and our line fence law. And you know that says that if your if your neighbor requests, you have to clear uh, within four feet of your fence uh, and clear it of any noxious weeds, brush, briars, thickets, and so on. And that used to be all I ever had to say about noxious weed law was that duty to clear your fence row. Um, but lately, we uh, definitely have seen more issues where there are noxious weeds out in the field, and there is a law for that as well. And still some issues with weeds creeping over through through the fence rows. So getting a lot more questions about how those laws actually work. So even though there is a duty to clear your fence row, it's kind of a sleeping duty until someone asserts it, like we were talking about earlier. So if your neighbor asks you, you must clear your fence row within um, 10 days of, of that neighbor making that request. And if you don't, then that neighbor can go to the township trustees and um, notify them that they asked and, and you didn't clear your fence row. So the trustees then will check in with you, decide whether the row should be cleared, and usually the trustees will give time. The law doesn't say that they have to give time but um, or some kind of explanation, but to you know give you a little extra time to do it. The law says if you don't do it, uh, then they can come in and, and have the work done and then assess the cost back on your property taxes. And then there's a similar law for if the weeds are out in the field, away from the fence row. Out there, it's a quicker timeline. You have five days. Oh, wow. Um, now, that's not a neighbor request, though. Basically, anyone can report to the trustees that there are noxious weeds out in, in some, on someone's private land. And the trustees are obligated by law to go and investigate that. And if they find that there are weeds um, that need to be destroyed, then they will order you to do so, and they only give you five days in that situation. So if you don't cut within, cut or destroy is language. If you don't cut or destroy within five days, then again, the trustees have the authority to come in and have them cut and uh, assess the cost back on the landowner. So as you can imagine, these get a little bit testy and controversial. Um, no one, no one uh, wants to have you know them, them be called in for having noxious weeds on their land. Especially when you have to mow down your crop or something like that. Yeah, and that's a question I get a lot. Does that mean I have to you know mow down my crop? Well, the language of the law is you have to cut or destroy the weed. Mm -hmm. So that's all that's required. That doesn't mean you have to take out your whole crop, but sometimes. Some of these problems have gotten to be pretty pervasive, and it's difficult to cut or destroy without taking the crop as well. So, very controversial. Yeah. So, what specific weeds are we dealing with that are covered by this law? There's a whole list, um, and that list is uh, determined by the director of the Ohio Department of Agriculture. But some of the noxious weeds laws also specifically list a few other weeds. Um, but the, the, the list of Ohio noxious weeds is in the Ohio Administrative Code, and there are, what, 18 weeds on that list now, I believe. They just, no, I think it's more than that, 28. 20-some, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm off. 28. Um, ODA just amended the list last September and added 13 yeah. new ones and took, oh. Three took or a five few off. off. Yeah. Okay. 
So the list can change as ODA determines, and they did make that determination last September, and they added palmer, amaranth, you know, some of those Mm -hmm. new kind of testy weeds that we're seeing. So is this, it can be like one single weed that you have to go destroy, or it can be an entire field of weeds. Is there a limitation on the number of weeds? No, no. It's it's a very... um, broad law. It just says if there are noxious mm-hmm. weeds, uh, then they must be cut or destroyed. Um, so there's there's nothing that limits the extent of that reach. <laughs> I think for m- most cases, it's more noticeable when there's a large grouping of them. But right. that's probably to our advantage because, as Mark Laux has pointed out a number of times, one palmer can produce a million seeds in a year so can take over pretty quickly so even if there's just one plant we want to make sure we get it out of there and you know mark and i have talked about the timing of of this law um and i and also you know there's another noxious weeds law that pretend or um applies to uh, rights of way so it says the trustees must mow the rights of way uh, between june 1st and 20th um, August 1st and 20th, and then if necessary, again, September. So Mark and I have talked about, you know, are we really catching the weeds at the appropriate time, given the kinds of noxious weeds we're dealing with now, their life cycles, and some of the kind of climate issues that we're seeing that are affecting when those weeds are appearing and are we mowing at the right time to catch right. the weeds in the rights of way and is that also contributing to weeds out in private fields so there's there's a lot a lot of uh, new issues coming up with noxious weeds that I'm a little bit concerned that the law doesn't adequately address so yeah that's interesting because that is one of the challenges with these weeds that we're seeing is their ability to germinate over the whole summer mm-hmm. and be at different stages of development with those mowing windows mm-hmm. yeah and that could be a big point of frustration for private landowners if they're coming in from a ditch or right away something like that that isn't being controlled at the right time exactly and if that noxious weed claim against them mm-hmm. um, is at the wrong time as well, Mark has mm-hmm. said that that could actually make the problem worse if they're out there trying to cut these weeds at certain times. Um, they're not catching them at the right time, and that could actually create more of a problem. So I don't think we quite have it figured out in this new new era of climate change and weeds coming in on cover crops and and you know in seed we've got a lot of issues yet to work out so i'm hoping that's something that oda will take a closer look at yeah yeah because that's one of the challenges with seed source is just because it's listed as a noxious weed in ohio um, doesn't mean that it is listed as noxious weed in other states so say kansas for example palmer is not a noxious weed in kansas so seed coming from Kansas doesn't need to be labeled as containing palmer seed. And I've heard several complaints from landowners having that very problem where they were guaranteed that no no noxious weeds in this seed, but they're not looking at the same list yes. of weeds. And so then it gets here in Ohio and we've got a palmer problem. Yeah, I got to spend a day over the summer pulling amaranth 
plants out of a crep seeding. So (laughs) (laughs) just one piece of advice. Do take advantage. ODA will test that seed for free. If you call them, they'll come pick it up and you can have it checked to make sure there's no noxious weed seed based off of the list in Ohio, not necessarily the state that it Mm -hmm. was um, created and packaged in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, taking that time can save you a lot of heartache and money down the road, for sure. Exactly. Um, Why don't we real quickly, just with all this rain and water, um, you get a few drainage questions, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So just summarize that a couple minutes and tell us what we need to know there. Right. Um, It is funny how the drainage questions increase when when we're having (laughs) a lot of water. Um, And the questions usually center around, uh, can my neighbor do that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so usually it means that someone's trying to deal with their own drainage problem and it's creating a problem elsewhere. And Ohio law does address that issue through just our common law, so court-made law. There's a doctrine called the uh, law of reasonable use. And it has two sides to it, actually. One side says you as a landowner have a right to make a reasonable use of your property and in doing so to affect the drainage uh, coming from your property. So, you know, if you do some things that changes the drainage and send surface water on down the watershed, that's legally permissible in Ohio. But the other side of it is it's only legally permissible if it doesn't create an unreasonable interference with someone else and their property. So you can make a reasonable use and affect the drainage in doing so, but if it becomes an unreasonable interference um, on against someone else, then you violated your duty of reasonable use. And that person who's affected can bring a negligence claim against you and receive damages if indeed, you know, your your changes of drainage have so impacted their property that they have actual damages. So there are a number of, of drainage suits uh, that occur regularly around Ohio where someone has gone too far and is pushing too much water off and creating problems. And often with with farmers, we see those where there's, where we're in those areas of development, uh, kind of significant changes. But sometimes it's uh, farm versus farm, where a farmer decides I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna remedy my drainage problem, and it ends up just sending a much bigger problem to the neighbors. So those are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, with the weather out there, everybody has a almost equal problem right now. It looks like driving around. Right. Right. <laughs> It's and uh, you know I'm not sure this is one that anyone can remedy at this at this point with any action at all, right? We're all suffering equally, but that is a that is a problem we hear about a lot. Just what what can my neighbor do to me? Yeah. And you know when your farm field is flooded out because someone changed something on their property or put in something new. A lot of times it's a you know pond going in, and that messes up the drainage then there is that that recourse. Uh, Unfortunately, it's legal recourse, which isn't always the answer that Mm -hmm. folks want to hear that they have to go to court. But um, the other avenue is to just work with soil and water and see if there's a remedy for correcting that interference. Mm -hmm. So that's usually where I send them first. And let's hold up on the legal recourse 
um, if they simply refuse to correct the problem. Well, um, you guys do a lot of outreach through your blog. Um, what are some, what's your website resources people can go to for all their ag, quest, ag law <laughs> questions? All things ag law. <laughs> uh, well, we do have a blog, and Evan's been doing a good job of keeping that moving lately. It's on farmoffice.osu.edu. There's a tab on there for the ag law blog. And if you're on the blog page, you'll see an option there to sign up to receive our blog posts by email. So we send out at least two, sometimes three posts a week. We try it. That's what we yeah, aim we try. for anyway. <laughs> We're a little bit dependent upon what's going on uh, legally, but we do try to send out regular posts on issues that affect Ohio farmers from a legal perspective. Other resources we have on that page, we have our Ag Law Library with a lot of our law bulletins that explain different topics of law, like um, agritourism. We have um, trespassing law, different property laws. There's one on drainage and the law of reasonable use, pond liability. Uh, what are some other ones line we have? Line fence. Yeah, the line fence one, yeah. right? Yeah, we've got quite a few law bulletins there that explain explain the law so yeah pretty extensive and really easy to understand too so that's a great resource hopefully we'll have one soon on um, nuisance law because we've gotten a lot of questions on nuisance law given the north carolina litigation Mm -hmm. that's going on so i've been trying to finish one up that explains ohio's right to farm law and how it affects nuisance so that hopefully will be coming soon there's always something coming soon right (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I think I definitely learned a lot, and I do enjoy reading your blog posts. Oh, good. It's things I wouldn't <laughs> normally – there's always an insight into something I don't understand, which yeah, I love, and it's helpful when, when talking to farmers. Good. Glad to hear that. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.